Hello, this is the Neurodivergent Woman Podcast. Hi, I'm Monique Mitchelson and I'm a clinical psychologist. And I'm Michelle Libok and I'm a clinical neuropsychologist. Michelle and I met at work and bonded over a shared love of feminism and yoga. We both saw the need to provide a free resource to adult neurodivergent women. And so the Neurodivergent Woman Podcast was born. Michelle is neurotypical. And Monique is neurodivergent. And we bring our clinical expertise and lived experience to the topics we explore. This is a podcast where we center and showcase neurodivergent women from all walks of life. Covering autism to ADHD and everything in between, we aim to educate and inspire women who think differently. In today's episode, Monique and I are talking about repetitive behaviors. This is a really broad uh, topic, I guess, with lots of things that could be included. And that's because there's so many things that can constitute a repetitive behavior. So we could think about that in terms of, say, body-based repetitive behaviors, stims, but also even more kind of broader behaviors like, you know, doing the same thing, doing the same activity, um, liking things in the same way, having things in a particular order or in a routine. So there's lots of different ways to define what a repetitive behavior is. And I guess just like everything and just like a lot of the things we've been talking about in this season, everyone engages in repetitive behaviors to some degree, no matter who you are, no matter what brain type you have, um, and no matter what purpose they serve. You know, doing things in the same way, everyone does that to a degree. But that's kind of the key point there. To what degree are you engaging in that level of repetitive behavior? So today we're going to be talking about repetitive behaviors in autism, OCD, uh, Tourette's and tics and hoarding behaviors as well. So we'll start off with autism. So when we think of repetitive behaviors in autism, that can look like physical repetitive behaviors, um, sometimes known as stimming, which means self-stimulating. And some common forms of stimming can be rocking, flapping your hands, uh, jumping up and down in the same spot. It can be repeating the same words or sentence or a line of a song, a snatch of a conversation. It can be jiggling your leg, tapping your fingers, touching your head or face in the same spot over and over, uh, rubbing a piece of fabric between your fingers um, or stroking, you know, the couch fabric. Yeah, so stims are usually sensory in nature. So they're a way of getting sensory stimulatory feedback. Um, and in autism, stims are usually used as a way to self-soothe um, or self-stimulate, but for the purposes of soothing and regulation. And a lot of the time, uh, autistic individuals might not, particularly you know when they're children, they might not even notice that they're doing it. It's just something that feels nice and feels good. It's interesting because uh, in therapy with clients, I actually have a document that has a list of really common, you know, stimming behavior. And when I ask people, okay, like, you know, do you stim? You know, what is it that you find that helps you regulate yourself? A, a lot of people will be like, oh, you know, I don't know if I really, you know, stim or I don't think I do it that much. But when I 
I actually get them to go through, you know, this quite comprehensive list. They're like, oh my God, (laughs) (laughs) is that actually um, considered a stim? Wow. Like I've done that all the time. Like since I was a kid in school, like rocking on the chair or humming or whistling and annoying all the other kids in the class. (laughs) (laughs) So often, you know, until we kind of realize or point some of these things out, people don't realize sometimes how much they're actually stimming um, or suppressing stimming. And sometimes it's the first time where someone has pointed out as well to the person that stimming is not a negative thing necessarily um, because sometimes – yeah, people have faced uh, exclusion or bullying because of stimming around, you know, other people, especially at school. Yes, stimming actually can be a really positive thing. And it's something I actually encourage clients to do uh, and, and point out like, hey, this could actually help you regulate your emotions. This could actually help you regulate your levels of anxiety. Um, actually this may improve your concentration levels as well because it's providing enough stimulation um, to help your brain concentrate on something that's not as interesting to you. Mm. Yeah, for sure. And I often find that a really big factor in trying to mask stimming or suppress stimming is actually feedback from parents often. Um, you know, a lot of adult clients will say, you know, oh, I learned not to do this thing, mainly because of the feedback they got from their parents around, you know, don't do that, right? And it's interesting because exactly as you said, it often has the reverse effect that parents wanted in that requiring your child to suppress their stimming makes them less capable of regulating their emotions, of complying, of doing the things that you need them to do. Whereas if you allow your autistic child to stim, they're actually going to have a little bit more capacity to do things that are harder. So yeah, I think um, normalizing and allowing space for stimming as an autistic person is really, really crucial. Yeah, especially in school as well. It's something that's really good for teachers to be aware of too, that actually could help with concentration in class um, and learning as well. Another form of repetitive behaviours is uh, routines, uh, rituals or insistence on sameness. Um, And with autism, that can often be actually a way of the person, again, self-soothing, especially when dealing with a unpredictable world um, and helping the person to cope with anxiety. And and again, a lot of people may not realise to the extent that they are um, doing a lot of the same things in the same way, in the same time, and they actually do have a routine going. So some examples of uh, routines or sameness in repetitive behaviours would be driving the same route every day to work, getting into work at the same time every day, ordering the same food at the same restaurant all the time. This makes me laugh, but actually at the cafe near our work, the lady who works there said that she loves it because every time I come in for my lunch order, I always read the full menu, but I end up choosing exactly the same food (laughs) time after time anyway. And she's like, I love that you like look like you're considering all the options, but you still go with the same like food and drink order. I'm like, yeah, because I know what I like. Yeah. 
you know, I don't want to be disappointed. (laughs) Yeah. And I think, you know, those repetitive behaviors in the sense of ritual, routine, et cetera, uh, are actually a really important way of increasing someone's capacity to be flexible in other areas of their life. If you're someone who likes sameness, you like routine, you like ritual, and there's areas of your life that require you to have the capacity to shift attention or shift focus or be flexible. You know, I'm thinking being a parent, maybe your job includes a little bit of that, right? Having these kind of rituals and routines actually helps to kind of even out the balance and helps your brain be able to relax into a state that naturally feels more comfortable, which then creates more kind of spoons, so to speak, or more capacity to do something that feels uncomfortable later on. So what we often find as well is noticing and uh, being aware of your kind of repetitive behaviors, your ritualized behaviors, how much you need a routine and need things to be the same is a really good way of keeping track of your stress levels because rigidity and control goes up when stress goes up because it's a way of controlling your environment, making things more predictable um, and creating a little bit more of that structure for yourself. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it can be things as simple as wanting to park in the same car park, wanting to go to the same stores um, in the same way, wanting to buy the same branded products. And then, yeah, I mean, have you ever been upset when your favorite food product gets discontinued? Oh, like that's the worst. <laughs> um, no. Oh, okay. Well, I have been, so. Because <laughs> then you have to go through all the effort of finding something else. And I, I do actually think like what you're saying, the repetitive routines and rituals, to me, it's like saving or conserving mm-hmm. energy because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. there's so much stuff that takes up energy. And then if this, if you kind of know what you're doing and you know, like the stuff that you're buying and like the recipes that you, you know, have on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and like, if all that stuff's going smooth, it's like, Mm. I don't know, saving a lot of brain energy. Yeah. And I think, uh, your explanation about as stress levels increase, maybe the level of rigidity increases because uh, I think for a lot of autistic people, um, if things are going fine, maybe like one change in the routine you can cope with. If things in your life are not going fine and you're generally really overwhelmed, then that one change in the routine, really difficult to cope with. Mm. So I think the distress that people have when their routines are challenged um, or don't go as planned can really, as you're saying, reflect the level of stress that they're under. Yeah, and I found with a number of clients that it's not necessarily the individual change or disruption in and of itself. It's usually, exactly as you were just explaining, that kind of compounding element Uh of change. It's uh like I can deal with the first thing, Uh but I can't uh deal with the tenth thing. Even though objectively the first thing was a bigger change and the tenth thing was a smaller change, it's the compounding nature of having to deal with that and gradually my capacity to be flexible and cope with that is being eroded. So keeping track of how difficult change is becoming for you is, yeah, as we said, a really good marker of where you're at mentally, emotionally. Yeah, I 100% agree. 
so OCD is another topic that we wanted to talk about today. Um, OCD standing for obsessive compulsive disorder. This is something that most people have heard of. Um, and one of my pet peeves is when people say, oh my God, I'm so OCD, right? Meaning that, oh, I really like things in a particular way. So clinically, that is not OCD. Liking to have something in a particular order just means you like it in that particular order. To be diagnosed with OCD, what actually needs to be happening is you need to be having intrusive thoughts. So thoughts that are distressing to you, unbidden, unwanted, popping into your head without your control. And that intrusive thought is then neutralized through a compulsive action. So unlike a stim, an autistic stim, where, you know, there may be no discernible thought that's happening before it, it's just a way of self-soothing, regulating, etc. The repetitive behaviors that we see in OCD serve the specific purpose of neutralizing or eliminating an intrusive thought. So, you know, an example might be a thought might pop into your head and you might need to uh, tap your fingers together five times before you can move on from that. With OCD, there's different types of compulsions that people can have, that's the behavior, and there's different types of intrusive thoughts that they can have, that's the obsession. A lot of adults, and adult women in particular, who are actually autistic are misdiagnosed with OCD, and the reason for that is diagnosticians not actually unpacking what the purpose of a behavior is. So they see repetitive behaviors and they think, oh, must be OCD. Yeah, I think uh, with that uh, misdiagnosis, one of the the factors to consider there is that usually people who have OCD, which you know is a genetic neurological neurodiversity in itself, what usually happens is they're not able to swap out the compulsion that's neutralizing the obsession. Whereas for an autistic person, if they're feeling anxious or overwhelmed, they may have many different stimming behaviors that they can switch between to consciously or subconsciously try to help them regulate that distress. So that's one thing to look at. The other is exactly what you said, Michelle, the the why. Um, always be looking at the why of a repetitive behavior, like what purpose does it actually serve? And, and it can be tricky because there, there is a genetic overlap uh, with autism and OCD and many of the neurodevelopmental differences that exist. So some of the research shows that up to 17% of autistic people also have OCD. So there's an overlap there. And there hasn't been, I guess, a lot of research up until the past few years on both autism and OCD and what the overlap is um, because they have been seen as quite separate. Yeah, and of course, you know, as, as we've said, you can have both OCD and autism as well, which makes it very difficult sometimes to work out, you know, what's a stim and what's a compulsion as part of your OCD. And sometimes I find, particularly with body-based compulsions, particularly for people who are autistic and have OCD, um, the body-based behaviors can start as a stim. So, for example, rubbing your fingers together, tapping fingers, picking, some 
something like that, but then turn into a compulsion. Mm -hmm. So because then you might get a thought that says, oh, I have to do this or, you know, this bad thing will happen or an anxiety thought or something pops into your head and you actually have to complete the action in a really particular way. So, you know, there's often overlap and muddiness in what's coming from where and what that kind of underlying purpose is sometimes. Yeah, and I think that's part of why we wanted to really talk about this topic on the podcast today. Something I want to note while we're on the topic of autism is that sometimes people will have uh, repetitive behaviours that can cause self-injury, such as headbanging or um, other behaviours like hitting themselves. Um, And I have seen clients present as adults, particularly young women who – Uh, When clinicians have seen that, you know, they've done headbanging, that's caused an injury or the person's hit themselves, um, you know, they've, they've come out with a diagnosis of borderline personality disorder. But when we've actually gone and done a really thorough, like, trauma assessment, full assessment of the situation and the neurodevelopmental history of the person um, and the genetic history in the family, it's come out that the person has actually headbanged since they were a young child and it's actually been a symptom of autism rather than BPD um, or like a self-injurious behavior related to trauma. So, yeah, I just wanted to flag that because I think that's something that's not really that well um, understood and it is important that, again, if – Uh, you're noticing that those behaviours that, again, there is a really thorough diagnostic clarification that happens there because, again, these waters can get a bit muddy. Yeah, and I guess in clarifying the kind of diagnostic origin or, you know, the purpose or what's causing some of these things, it's really important to keep in mind how some of these behaviors might morph and change over the lifespan, right? So I think, you know, a lot of people who are working in pediatrics, working with kids who see headbanging behavior, well, one of the first kind of flags to go off would be autism. But when you're working with an adult who's maybe doing the same thing or that behavior has morphed to, as you said, Monique, you know, hitting yourself in the head or, you know, uh, other self-injurious behaviors like banging your leg or smashing your fists together or things like that that have morphed from, you know, head banging to a more kind of adult version of a self-injurious stim. And we don't have the knowledge of how those things uh, develop and change over the lifespan. It can be easy just to say, oh, well, that can't be a self-injurious stim anymore. But yeah, I think that getting that developmental history, understanding how these things morph and change is really important. Hello, listeners. We have a request. We want to hear your questions. In our last episode for the season, Michelle and I will be answering listener questions. So if there's anything that you're burning to ask or that you feel you want more information on, email us at ndwomanpod at gmail.com. Get your questions in by November 7th and tune in to our last episode of the season to hear them answered. Brains can get very noisy. 
I tend to go through phases in what's most helpful in quieting that noise and recentering. And at the moment, I've been gravitating towards music and soundscapes, slowly making my way through a huge library on the Calm app. And I've been trying to get better at having a more peaceful morning routine. And I've definitely found that the morning playlists really help a lot with that, actually. Yeah, I think most people think of meditation as the only way we can ground ourselves and quiet our brain, but sound and music are actually so helpful. What's really cool about the music and sound library on Calm is the variety. They've got playlists for times of the day and certain moods, soundscapes, and even alpha wave and bilateral stimulation tracks, which can be incredibly effective at helping you to emotionally regulate and getting your brain in a sleep-ready state. For sure. My favourites at the moment are the Disney soundscapes. So they've got things like an evening in Jasmine's garden, Merida's mystical Scottish forest, um, as well as other ones that you'd expect, like rolling thunderstorms and the like. The Calm app puts the tools that you need to feel better in your back pocket. If you go to calm.com forward slash neuro, you'll get a special offer of 40% off a Calm premium subscription and new content is added every week. For listeners of the show, Calm is offering an exclusive offer of 40% off a Calm premium subscription at calm.com forward slash neuro. Go to calm.com slash n-e-u-r-o for 40% off unlimited access to Calm's entire library. That's calm.com forward slash neuro. Okay, so the next repetitive behavior that we're going to chat about are tics and Tourette disorder. So tics are sudden movements or sounds um, that people do repeatedly, um, and it's usually not within the person's conscious control. There's different types of tics. For example, motor tics like blinking over and over, clearing your throat repetitively, making repetitive vocal sounds, repetitively uh, picking your skin or um, picking your hair, which is called trichotillomania. So people who have Tourette's usually have both motor and vocal tics and those tics have been present for at least one year. Part of the reason that we bring up tics and Tourette's is that there is quite a genetic um, overlap with tics and Tourette's and things like OCD, ADHD and autism. Uh, And tics and Tourette's are considered a neurodevelopmental condition, just like, you know, autism and ADHD. So what the research shows is that over 20% of people with Tourette's may also be autistic, um, so have an autism diagnosis, and over 50% of people with Tourette's also have OCD or are ADHDers. Yeah, so there's such a massive overlap between, you know, tics and Tourette's and other neurodivergences. And the kind of frustrating thing is the research isn't really clear on what actually causes tics. You know, it's such an interesting area because tics are essentially this involuntary um, behavior. And, you know, we know that they tend to increase around anxiety. So it's kind of like, well, is it a manifestation of anxiety? Um, And there certainly sounds 
sounds like there's an element of that, right? It's like a somatization, so a body-based manifestation of someone's underlying stress and anxiety, but that's not all there is to it. So what we know now is roughly the brain circuitry that's involved, um, and we know that there's a genetic component and an anxiety-based component, and some research is saying that there's an autoimmune component as well. But that's really it. Uh, it's really hard to pin down. So yeah, we're still trying to figure out, I guess, a lot of the components to do with ticks and Tourette's. Um, however, the treatment at the moment uh, very much is medication-based, so trying to, I guess, suppress the tick with medication um and then the other only known treatment really is a form of cognitive behavioral therapy which involves um, giving people strategies for any underlying anxiety um, or stress um, that they may have to help them cope with that uh, and also trying to increase the person's awareness of the tick behavior and then redirect um the, the behavior as well. So for example, if uh, you want to sort of go pull your hair, it's sort of noticing your hand coming towards your head, um, the urge to pull your hair and then redirecting yourself to fidget or fiddle something else. But yeah, like the, uh, I guess the, the treatments really aren't that effective. And yeah, basically, again, I think for a lot of people living with ticks, uh, a lot of the stuff we've talked about with other neurodevelopmental things and neurodiversity in general would apply, which is more, I think, like trying to remove stigma, acceptance um, of ticks and having self-compassion for yourself and what's normal for you. So the last repetitive behavior we'll talk about today is hoarding. And this is actually an interesting one because recent research has kind of actually distanced hoarding from the anxiety disorders, which is, you know, how it was originally conceptualized and thought of and placed it more in the camp of an executive functioning issue. Some of the, the recent research that has come out shows that there is actually a big overlap between ADHD and hoarding. So in, in this piece of research, they found that one in five ADHDers had significant levels of hoarding. And this latest research that came out actually recommended that we should be screening ADHD is in general for hoarding disorder because of, you know, the massive overlap, which is quite interesting. And we used to think of hoarding disorder as mainly an anxiety disorder. So the anxiety disorder that hoarding used to be most associated with was OCD. Um, and we used to believe that hoarding was, I guess, a symptom of that obsessive compulsive behavior. Yeah, um, like the hoarding behavior was compulsive. Yeah, yeah, so acquiring things and then not being able to get rid of them. However, this recent piece of research showed that actually OCD symptoms didn't really significantly predict hoarding behaviors and actually inattentive symptoms of ADHD were the most predictive of, you know, how much clutter a person had um, and how much difficulty they had with making decisions about um, throwing things away and keeping their space organized. Mm. So that's actually showing that it could be more of an executive functioning issue. And 
when we look at that, there is a new uh, program called the Crest Program, which is a hoarding treatment program. And it mainly focuses on um, giving people with hoarding issues those executive functioning supports. So it's really interesting because this program talks a lot about um, people using calendars, uh, to-do lists, having visual reminders and sticky notes, making sure you place things in the same place. So having visual cues to help you organize your belongings and your space, assisting with things like problem solving and making decisions. So it's sort of showing that I guess when we're looking at hoarding, part of the issue for people is actually being really overwhelmed and having difficulty with organization, like organizing their belongings and making decisions to throw things away. Which makes so much more sense intuitively when you think about that as opposed to it being driven by anxiety. Um, And I guess the other element there is that kind of emotional attachment to items, not wanting to throw things away or not wanting to lose the memory. And again, though, this is where the executive functioning component comes in And we know a lot of ADHDers have a hard time retaining uh, memories or feeling like they remember things. And a lot of that comes down to that kind of cognitive disorganization. So difficulty keeping information organized in the short term so that it's harder to actually store it away for the longer term. And also another reason why ADHDers can find it more difficult to retain what's called episodic memories. So memories of events, experiences, things like that, um, particularly inattentive type ADHDers is because they're often in their own head. <laughs> so again, you know, for memory to consolidate, you first need to be paying attention to what's happening. And then you need to have that information organized in your mind enough so that your brain can store it effectively. So to bring this back to the hoarding stuff, if you have a hard time retaining memories, sometimes a lot of that information is just attached to items and objects. So it can be really hard to throw it away because it feels like you're losing your memories. Yeah, and I think part of the the reason why it was previously classified um, as an anxiety disorder is because of the amount of distress that an anxiety people would have about discarding and throwing away items. But, I mean, if you look at it through um, this executive functioning lens, that makes sense as to, like, why with memories and things like that, people would be distressed about discarding things without actually having that executive functioning support put in place. And also emotion regulation, right, which is linked to executive functioning as well. You know, being able to tolerate and manage your emotions around, you know, doing something difficult like getting rid of things. To me, the flavour, I guess, that I get from hoarding issues, hoarding disorder is overwhelm Mm -hmm. in every sense of the word. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's interesting too because there have been uh, studies that also looked at the hyperactive part of ADHD and found that people who have the combined type that the level of impulse control um, for people may also be behind the accumulation of Mm -hmm. items. So again, rather than looking at it from like an OCD obsessiveness sort of component, it's actually going, okay, well, maybe it's coming from that 
impulse to kind of dopamine buy um, or not being able to budget or um, say no to that short-term gratification of buying something and then not having the space to organize it and store it properly. So we also had a bit of a look at the overlap between hoarding behaviors and uh, repetitive behaviors or hoarding in autism. And some of what differentiates collecting and repetitive behaviors with autism is usually autistic people, um, if they are collectors, will collect things around their uh, intense interests or special interests. Um, And yeah, like sometimes as well, people will have an emotional attachment to their things and their objects and it could be very difficult to let go of those things. But usually the level of uh, accumulation and hoarding is not as intense um, if it really is more a collection of items around a special interest. Yeah. And then I think we get back into those muddy water territories where, of course, someone can be autistic and also, you know, have a hoarding disorder. Um, and that's where we're then seeing more of that classic hoarding behavior. And I think what the research shows is that regardless of whether you're an autistic person or a non-autistic person, if you're exhibiting hoarding behavior, so clinical hoarding behavior, uh, the behavioral profile is quite similar between the two. So if you're an autistic person, you might find that some of your items that you collect have more of a collection feel to it and other elements have more of a hoarding feel to it Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah and I think just underlying all of this it has been interesting just reviewing the research around uh helping people with hoarding and when this crest program um was evaluated it actually found that the the previous treatment when we classified hoarding as a primarily anxiety-based disorder was cognitive behavioral therapy or cbt and the research actually found that CBT isn't that effective for hoarding disorder um, and actually case management of the person was more effective than CBT programs. So executive functioning intervention. <laughs> Basically, yeah. 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 Um, but when they've evaluated the CREST program, they actually did find that it significantly improved uh, people's ability to manage their belongings um, and decrease that level of clinical hoarding. So I guess in kind of putting all of this information together on repetitive behaviours, there's so many different things that can cause and drive a repetitive behavior. Um, and really important to be thinking about firstly, is this a behavior that is harming me or others? If not, who cares? Keep doing it, right? If it's a behavior that's causing you or others distress, um, and when I say others, I don't just mean you know, they think it's weird. Um, I mean, you know, if we're talking about, say, hoarding, have your children been removed? Is it impossible for you to have your family over because they can't be in your house? So when we think about, you know, is this harming other people? I mean, actually harming them, not just irritating other people necessarily. So that's the first, I think, litmus test. Is this actually a problem? for me or for others. If you decide that it is a problem, then the thing that's really important to work out is why 
What is driving that behavior? Understanding the why is so crucial because obviously, you know, we can't actually address the behavior if we don't understand what purpose it's serving. Um, and I think as clinicians, uh, doctors, mental health professionals, treating professionals, it's really crucial that when a client presents to you with any form of repetitive behavior, taking the time to actually unpack what is driving that rather than just assuming, oh, it looks like X or it must be this. So we're going to follow this, you know, prescribed treatment. Um, super, super important. Yeah. And I think it's, it's really important, um, to be aware of the overlap, the level of overlap. You know, if you are neurodivergent in one way, there's good chances that you may have other neurodivergences. Um, and so you may have multiple things going on. So it's really important for neurodivergent people in general, but also, yeah, treating professionals to be aware of the genetic overlap and to be aware that um, if you're working with someone, you really want to be thorough in your assessment and be, be aware that uh, a lot of these things can have multiple factors. If you enjoyed this episode and want to support us further, you can head to our page on Patreon and buy us a coffee or a wine. Patreon subscribers receive access to a bunch of additional resources, as well as a monthly live Zoom hangout to ask us questions, chat about feelings, our favorite thing to talk about, and connect with other neurodivergent women. You can find a link to our Patreon in the show notes and on our website ndwomanpod.com. We really appreciate your support on this journey as we aim to make quality psychological and mental health care information accessible to everyone. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Neurodivergent Woman podcast. If you have a question or would like to contact us, you can do so through our Facebook and Instagram at the handle the Neurodivergent Woman podcast or our website ndwomanpod.com. You can also email us directly at ndwomanpod at gmail.com. Bye for now.